This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. People with dementia do wonder, and some people with dementia that have not wondered yet could wonder anytime. It was a terrible tragedy that will concern anyone who has a loved one suffering from dementia. 82-year-old Chandrauti Basdeo was killed in a hit-and-run as she was wandering across Highway 400 in the middle of the night. Anna Grinberg from Toronto's Baycrest wants families to know what they can do to prevent these types of accidents. She'll share some strategies with us today. Plus, for years he duped his government, his colleagues and his best friend. Super spy Kim Philby is the subject of Ben McIntyre's new book, A Spy Among Friends, Kim Philby and the Great Betrayal. He'll join us a little later on. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week marked the 69th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On August the 6th, the American B-29 bomber, the Enola Gay, dropped the atomic bomb, Little Boy, on Hiroshima. It resulted in the deaths of at least 140,000 people, mostly old men, women, and children. Japanese-American actor George Takei put together a YouTube video to pay tribute to those who lost their lives. At the time, I was eight years old, living in an internment camp in Tule Lake, California. I would not know the fate of our family living in Hiroshima until the war had ended. You can see the full video online. Argentine human rights activist Estela Carlotto has been reunited with her long-lost grandson for the first time since he was snatched by the 1970s military junta. Carlotto's daughter, Laura, gave birth to her grandson, Guido, in 1978. Laura was killed two months later, and Estela never saw Guido again. She formed an organization, the Grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo, to reunite biological parents with hundreds of children born in prisons and torture centers. These women demonstrated every day for years to promote their cause. And there were two new studies on brain health this week. First, a six-year study of more than 1,600 seniors has found those with low vitamin D levels are twice as likely to develop dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Meanwhile, another piece of research shows that age-related decline in memory and thinking abilities may increase a senior's risk of stroke and death. That work included more than 7,200 Americans older than 65. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We just need some peace. Like, we just want to know that when she was there, like, like someone should have been with her. Like, what, what happened, I think, if he were to, or he or she... If they were to bring themselves forward, we would feel a little bit more at ease and at peace. 
That was the Bastéo family's heartbreaking plea after 82-year-old Chandrauti was killed in a hit-and-run accident this week. The family matriarch had Alzheimer's and dementia and had wandered onto Highway 400 in the middle of the night. She'd wandered before, but never when it was dark. 200,000 people live with Alzheimer's here in Ontario, and for their friends and family, the question is, what can be done to prevent tragedies like this? I reached nurse clinician Anna Grinberg, who works with Alzheimer's and dementia patients and their families at Toronto's Baycrest. People with dementia do wonder, and some people with dementia that not wondered yet could wonder anytime. Is there any way of knowing that your loved one with dementia may wander away even if they haven't in the past? So as there are no heads up, because dementia is a progressive disease, people will misjudge any time, and we never know what stage of disease they currently are. However, if somebody wandered once, their chances to wander again much higher. Okay, but not everyone with dementia will wander. Not everyone with dementia will wander, but the risk is there. So if they 20 years ago went to work every day, they could get up at 3 a.m. because they have no understanding of time concept and judgment and just starting getting ready to work. So if you're going to start telling them that this is not the right time, that they're not working anymore, these people cannot reason. You're saying that one sign you should be paying attention to see if the person looks like they're getting ready to leave. You need to monitor a person with dementia and you need to know their whereabouts because their memory is affected and they're losing recent memory. So their reality is not necessarily our reality. To start orienting them and argue or negotiate is not going to be helpful. So somebody is at the door trying to leave and you tell them, don't leave now, it's 3 a.m., you're not working anymore, it's going to bring to more arguments. We're not lying to people because it's very easy to lose the trust with a person and they also don't feel, they don't, they don't want to feel that you disrespect and treat them as a child because they're adults, they're different people. So what needs to be done, you come to the door and say, uh, mom or dad, are you planning to leave somewhere? And come with me, let's have a cup of tea first. So you don't say you're going to leave later, we're going to leave together. You're not misleading the people. You're just trying to take their attention to something else. Always be calm and positive, not anxious, because the body language and the emotional state that the person deals with, people could read for a long, long time. People with dementia do respond to the way that people approach them. You don't argue with them. You don't bring them back to reality, but rather distract them and redirect them. Uh-huh. And by the time that they're drinking coffee and tea with you, by the time they're putting the sweater, their mind is off the, 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 the goal to leave. And they they much calmer, and at this point you maybe look at albums, speak about something else, and then the person would come down and they forget that they were supposed to leave. Obviously, no one can monitor somebody 24 hours a day. That's right. So how do you deal with that? Do you make sure that they can't get out of the house? Uh... You know, the whole point is to be respectful to a person with dementia the same way as we're respectful to each other. So what we need to do is house-proof the environment. 
the same way you do for children. It's done on a different level. So what could be done? You could, pee, you could put two locks on the door. So only you would know that you need to open two locks in order for you to get out. Or you put a lock that looks like a lock, but it's really not a lock, so they could fiddle with it, but they're not able to open the door. You could put the monitor at your bedside at night, for example, the same way that you monitor, uh, you know, children. And so you hear what's going on in a person's room. You could put an alarm system in a place that you put alarm so you are aware that somebody is about to leave. You could put a bell so when the door opens, you hear it. So anything to advise you or to alert you that there is a door that is opening and somebody is trying to leave. So you're advising anyone who lives at home with someone with dementia should houseproof their home? Absolutely. They also need to make sure that they have a bracelet or identifying that person. So if the person leaves and you call the police, there is a bracelet or something that is on that person that they wear could, could be easily found and identified as soon as you noticed. Okay. It sounds like very good advice. Anna Grinberg, thank you so much. Not a problem. Thank you. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Kim Philby, the duplicitous British spy, is the subject of the brand new book, A Spy Among Friends. In just a moment, I'll be joined by author Ben McIntyre. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. He was the greatest spy in history, rising to head Britain's counterintelligence against the Soviet Union while he was actually secretly working for them. Most Zoomers will be familiar with the story of Kim Philby. He was part of a ring of upper-class Englishmen recruited while at university at Cambridge in the 1930s. I talked with the author of a new biography that focuses on Philby's personal betrayals. Ben McIntyre also based A Spy Among Friends on recently released documents. Although Kim Philby is a, is a well-known name to many people, the real story is, is, is widely unknown, actually. And the last sort of serious biography of Philby is now 20 years old. Um, and in the intervening time, a huge amount of new material has been released, uh, both official and unofficial. And uh, on top of which, a lot of people who would have found this subject very difficult to talk about uh, 20 years ago have now opened up about the real facts of, of what happened. So one reason is really that there's just a great deal more of the story around. And the second reason that I wanted to write this was that the Kim Philby story has always been told, really, as an ideological story. But I wanted to do something slightly different with it, if I could, which was to try and tell it more, really, as a story of personality and character and loyalty and betrayal and ultimately friendship, because I think that really is the hinge on which the Philby story turns. And it's never really been written in that way before, I think. The thing that I really, really took away from the book uh, was an indictment of the British class system, the way it existed. You're saying that basically he got away with this because he was considered above reproach because of uh, the family that he came from. That's exactly right. I mean, Philby was 
invisible, really, within MI6, the British intelligence service, because to all outward appearances, he was perfect. I mean, he spoke with the right accent. He'd been to the right schools. Uh, he wore the right old school tie. He belonged to the right clubs. And, and to understand just how sort of invulnerable that made him, one has to really appreciate the kind of bond that existed between men of a certain class who had fought the war together. And I think that is partly what made Philby completely invisible to his colleagues and contemporaries, was that he, they just simply could not believe that someone like Philby could actually be playing for the other side. Philby wasn't alone, but uh, his other colleagues said they were all recruited when they were at Cambridge in the 30s, all by this one brilliant recruiter. Well, this was the this was the inspirational, very simple but inspirational idea of Soviet intelligence in the 1930s, was to recruit young upper middle class English men uh, of, a, of, of a left-wing persuasion and get them young. Get them, if you like, as a kind of seed capital uh, that could be simply allowed then to, to, to go out into the British establishment and gradually rise through the ranks in the absolute expectation that eventually these people could be then activated as Soviet intelligence agents and that they would then have access to important uh, areas of power and information. And, and that's really, it, it sounds like a very simple idea now, but it's what's now called in intelligence jargon, it's called recruiting upstream. The Cambridge Five were all highly intelligent, highly qualified left-wing individuals, many of whom had rather brilliantly covered their tracks in terms of their, their communist leanings, including uh, Kim Philby. Right, he and had that, a right-wing kind of interlude. <laughs> well, he did, I mean, but that was under instructions from his Soviet controller who said to him, look, Kim, you have to expunge completely your left-wing past and you have to become a right-winger so that it'll cover up really where your, where your real allegiances lie. And what now looks, in retrospect, like an incredibly obvious conversion to the other side. But that was all part of the plan. That was all part of the cover. You document uh, the damage that he was able to do. He alerted the Soviets to uh, anti-Nazi Germans who were likely to become anti-communists after the war, and they were executed. And uh, you talk about this uh, incredible Albanian mission where young men were sent into Albania to, uh, to try to topple Enver Hoxha, the communist, and, and they were all killed because Philby was passing the information on to his Soviet masters. Yes, that's right. I mean, there's always been a tendency to see Philby as if he was some sort of rogue and, 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 and a kind of rather romantic figure who, who didn't do an enormous amount of harm. I mean, the fact is that Philby was responsible for the death of not hundreds, but thousands of people, agents who were being sent behind the Iron Curtain um, to try and sort of undermine various communist regimes. And because Philby was so far ahead of the game, I mean, he was able to tip off Soviet intelligence ahead of time, and they were all rounded up. And not just the agents themselves, their families were slaughtered wholesale in some instances. Philby achieved something that no other spy has ever achieved. He managed not just to penetrate uh, Anglo-American intelligence, he managed to get himself into a very senior position within British intelligence, with liaison with the Americans, which meant that he not only could warn the Soviets of what was happening. He could also warn the Soviets of what the British and Americans were planning to do. 
And so it allowed the Soviets to, to get completely prepared before it ever happened. Now, no one's ever done that before. And uh, indeed, as one CIA agent said after Philby was exposed, you know, we would have been better off doing nothing. Now let's turn to the personal that you deal with so much. So he basically betrayed his very best friends. And uh, he was a prodigious drinker, and he would have these long, boozy lunches with colleagues where he never spilled any of his own secrets, but they told him all of theirs. That's right. I mean, at the, at the heart of this story is a very intimate personal betrayal. Uh, Nicholas Elliott uh, is a character that most people have never heard of, but he was one of uh, Kim Philby's very closest friends, if not his closest friend. The two of them had joined MI6 together. They had risen through the ranks together. They had, you know, they, they were the closest possible buddies, really. And throughout that time, Philby took every single secret that his closest friend told him, and he deliberately manipulated him to tell him everything he could uh, and passed it all to the Soviets. And, and the kind of crescendo of the story happens when finally uh, uh, Nicholas Elliott discovers that Kim Philby has been betraying him for nearly 30 years. And he insists that, that he and only he must be allowed to confront Kim Philby and, and to extract, if he can, a confession from him. And that is, in a way, the kind of the, the sort of dramatic high point of, of the book. I think he gradually became more and more addicted really to the drug of infidelity. I mean, he enjoyed knowing more than other people. He enjoyed being able to manipulate people. And, and, and that is sort of reflected also in his, in his marital and, and his private and emotional lives. I mean, he loved, he loved to be the winner. He loved to know a little bit more than the person standing next to him in the bus queue. And it became a kind of pathology for him that he, he actually loved and became addicted to the drug of deception. A Spy Among Friends, Kim Philby and the Great Betrayal, is published by McClelland and Stewart. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll take a quick break, and then it's back to celebrate the birth of a man who helped pioneer the sound of rock and roll. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, Academy Award winning Kate Blanchett stars in a revival of the 1947 play The Maids. It's the story of two sisters who fantasize about killing their employer. It's playing in a limited run at the Lincoln Center Festival. To the Windy City, Chicagoisms is an exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago. It takes a look at the city's many urban and architectural innovations. In London, England, the musical Dessa Rose is getting rave reviews. It's set in 1846 in the American South and follows the friendship that develops between a young white woman and a young black woman. It's at the Trafalgar Studios, too. And in Paris, a tribute to the mask is an exhibition at the Louvre. The many purposes of the mask are explored in drawings, sculptures, paintings, and engravings. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. On this day in 1909, Leo Fender was born. 
He had a bigger impact on the sound of the Zoomer generation than just about any musical artist, and that's because of his famous invention, the Stratocaster guitar. It's perhaps the most iconic electric guitar in the history of rock and roll. It was used by nearly all of the early rock and roll bands from the 50s. It was burnt on stage by Jimi Hendrix and to this day remains one of the top-selling guitar models with very few changes from the original 1954 model. Right now, we'll go back to the first number one hit song ever recorded on a Stratocaster. Here is Buddy Holly with Peggy Sue. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you know why I feel blue without Peggy. My Peggy Sue. Oh, well, I love you, Gallus. I love you, Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue. Oh, how my heart yearns for you, oh, Peggy, my Peggy Sue. Oh, well, I love you, Gallus, I love you, Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue, Peggy Sue, pretty, 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 pretty Peggy Sue, oh, oh Peggy. Buddy Holly with Peggy Sue, the first number one song recorded with a Fender Stratocaster. Today marks the anniversary of inventor Leo Fender's birth. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Come back next week to learn why you're probably a morning person, even if you don't know it. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandry. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.